Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Uh, my name is Adam. If I didn't meet you, it was on purpose. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> My name is Adam. I work here, and, and uh, I'm excited to share with you this morning. Um, I have a theory. Uh, when it comes to trusting the Lord, when it comes to trusting Jesus, when it comes to following the Lord, I think there are two major reasons why somebody can hear about Jesus and not follow him. The number one reason, I think, that people will hear about Jesus and not follow him, not trust in him, not be a member of a church, not uh, continue and persevere through the seasons of life. I think the number one reason that people will do that is because of the ethics of God. I think people will have their worldview formed inside themselves over years, and they say, like, it's usually in your 20s that you become who you're going to be, like from 20 to 25. And people will, will start to form those things as teenagers. People will start to form those things um, as they develop and as they mature. And then they'll be confronted with the Lord in his glory. And spoiler alert, the Lord has a lot to say about your life. He has a lot to say about your body. He has a lot to say about your money. He has a lot to say about sexuality. He says a lot about your life. And people will meet Jesus and they'll hear about his demands and they'll back out. And I think that's, that's not what I'm preaching about this morning. But I think that definitely happens. And, and really, the solution to this is actually uh, fairly simple, if you're ready for it. Um, what you need to do, if you're, if you're facing that sort of tension, if you're facing that sort of... I would follow Jesus if he just thought differently about this. You know, if he just, if he just agreed with me about this. If, if that's the confrontation, the solution is to see yourself rightly and to see the Lord rightly. Because honestly, like, if he really did create everything, then he kind of deserves to call the shots. Wouldn't you say? So if I built a car for you, and I'm like, man, here's this car I built with expertise and skill. This is a metaphor. That would not happen. Um, if I gave you a car and said, like, it runs on gasoline, and you're like, cool, I really like kerosene, <laughs> and I have a bunch in the garage, so let's just try that on for size. I'm like, well, trust me, I built the engine, and it runs on gasoline. It's like, what if I did orange juice? Because I really like orange juice, and I have an orange tree in my backyard. It would be so much more convenient if I could do orange juice. Shouldn't the one who built the car tell you what to put in the car? And so the, the confrontation that happens, I'm not trying to belittle it because it is real, and it is a, a tension that people feel in the innermost part of who they are. Like, I just, why would God allow this, or why would God say you can't do this, or say you have to do this? I get that. But the, the answer is when you see, like, wow, you really are the Lord, and I really am a created being. So it makes sense that I would defer to you. Um, the second reason, and, and I don't know if this is more telling, and I don't want anybody to get, like, unnecessarily hurt this morning. I'm not trying to say that these are the only reasons, but these are broad categories that a lot of things fall into. The second category, I think, is timing that I think there are people who will genuinely come before the Lord of glory. They'll hear the truth about him, and they will even have genuine experience with him. 
that however you want to describe this, whether it's like words like encounter or revelation or whatever, people will have genuine experiences with Jesus Christ, the Lord, and still walk away. And I think there's something in the human heart that lets hope become deferred. And there, let, me, let, me, let me list off a couple scenarios for you and, and nod approvingly if these, if these resonate with you. I trust Jesus, but I've been praying for this thing for some time, and I have not gotten an answer. I, I believe God for this promise, but I see no sign of that coming anytime soon. I believe that the Lord is good, but right now it feels like his definition of good and my definition of good are very, very different. And there are people who sit in churches week after week after week, and they are suffering. And they're believing God's going to deliver me. But I see no, I see nothing like that on the horizon. I see no hope of deliverance or freedom coming anytime soon. It's not that God isn't good. It's that his timing is bad. That people could have genuine experiences with Jesus, but him show up late and them quit. I hope that this isn't just me. I, I, I've been thinking about this for a long time because I, I want to have a really cool answer. And I think the Bible is just not intimidated by me and my desire for answers. So we just keep coming to the, the same sort of promises. We keep coming to the same sort of things. So if you're in your Bible and you're in Matthew 13, let's look there. Um, over the last couple weeks, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at parables of the kingdom of God. And uh, Nate's been doing a really good job walking through them and, and kind of introducing these themes. This is the premier teaching topic for Jesus while he's incarnate, walking the earth, is this, this thing he calls the kingdom. And I always like to set up things a little historically so we know where we're at as we're reading, excuse me, we find ourselves in the Israel of the New Testament. And, and I always feel bad calling that ancient Israel because we do have a lot of history of Israel. So it's like, it's newer ancient. So the ancient Israel of the New Testament. And we're in a portion of Matthew's biography of Jesus that is less like a chronological order. I was talking to some folks this week who are trying to read the Bible from, from uh, end to end. And I think that's awesome. I think that's a great way to read the Bible. But this is the first time ever in the Bible and I'm so stoked, and they're, they're just combing through it like crazy. And I was just warning them that Genesis kind of leads you into a, a strange sense of security where it's relatively in order. But there comes a point where things are just jumping around like crazy, and some biographies are written in order, and that's stated very clearly, and some biographies are more grouped by theme. So don't let that like assuage your trust in the scriptures. It's literature, you know? It's true historical events but told in a way that is easier to understand. So where we're at right now is less like a, like a timeline, and it's more like an uh, anthology. It's more like a collection of teachings. And so just before this in the chapters, we see Jesus doing these specific scenarios where he responds to uh, things that are going on. So he starts to teach on the Sabbath, and he does it by like having his uh, disciples harvesting grain on the day that they're supposed to be resting. And then he goes into the synagogue for the, the time of teaching and the time of learning, and he heals somebody. And everybody's getting bent out of shape. Everybody's really worried. Like, what are you doing? This is breaking the Sabbath. And then he uses those opportunities to teach about the Sabbath. And then he starts delivering people from demons. 
And people are like, how are you doing this? What's going on? Why is this, why is this happening? And he uses that to lead into this teaching on the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God, like Nate's been defining over the last several weeks, is not just a synonym for where you go when you die if you've been like a decent person. The kingdom of God is the leadership and lordship of Jesus now. Amen. The kingdom of God, this isn't like some sort of thing where it's like, yeah, we're going to go take over the, the governmental powers that be and we're going to establish God's kingdom. You know, it's not like that sort of kingdom, but it is subversive, it is meaningful, and it does affect our lives and it does affect the world. And so... Jesus is showing you by healing and delivering and, and defining things very clearly, this is what my kingdom is like. And then we get to this portion where there's um, like sort of teachings at uh, various lengths. Some are longer, some are shorter. We're looking at a pretty short one today where Jesus is, is using metaphors to describe his kingdom. And metaphors are really helpful when they're helpful. Um, <laughs> and thankfully, the Lord helps us and explains these things with us. So let's look at this one. Verse 31 is where we're going to start. He, he being Jesus, presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Verse 32 says this, and this is the smaller, and this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it comes, when it, wow, take a deep breath. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So when we look at this parable, we get like basically one main character, and they're kind of invisible. There's a sower. There's somebody is implied to being like sowing the seeds. And we've seen this, this sort of example before. We, we read on Easter the parable of the sower, or actually we did the, the treasure in the field, sorry. Um, We've done the parable of the sower. Um, this idea that God is the one that is sowing the seed. But the kind of mechanism for this particular metaphor, this particular parable, is the seed. He's saying the kingdom of God is like the seed. Now, is anybody in here an avid botanist? Oh, thank God. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, if you are, if you, maybe you dabble, like you wouldn't say, I don't know, I'm a botanist, I'm not a professional, but I'm a, I dabble in botany. Um, you would know that the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. And that shouldn't assuage your trust in the scriptures, because this is a literary device that is used all over the place in every culture everywhere. And you could kind of call it hyperbole, but it's more like the proverbial example. Because to the New Testament Israel, the mustard seed was like the go-to metaphor for smallness. So if you're going to say like, well, how long were you there? I was there for like a mustard seed amount of time. That would, that would communicate to the hearer, it was a very small amount of time that I was there. And so it's not to say like, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. This is untrue. There's smaller seeds. There's this seed. And that, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is to the immediate audience, this would be understood like, oh yeah, that's really small. And that's, that's the point they're getting off of. It's really small. Also, is anybody like, uh, like really comfortable and, and familiar with mustard plants? <laughs> Brayden's got a working knowledge of mustard plants. I don't know. I, like, and honestly, like in sermon preparation, I don't really busy myself with stuff like that. You know? like, so I don't know if I've probably seen a mustard plant. I don't know. But I think it's, it's, it's worth it to say that like, it isn't uncommon for a mustard seed to be planted and grow into a tree. That's not something you necessarily would see in the West, 
But in the East, and especially back in the day, these were not just garden plants that you could harvest leaves and make uh, delicious soul food. This was actually something that you would uh, see grow into a tree. So the shocking reveal that birds can nest in the branches is not going to be like, what is this strange irony that, that is happening now? It was, it was understood that is a plant that can grow into a tree. Sometimes, I read, can be 12 feet tall. So that's a pretty good tree, in, in my opinion, as trees go. Um, I think we, we get into this metaphor, we get into these, these symbols, and there is uh, something that I think is really helpful that Jesus does with these kinds of parables. We explained last week that um, Jesus had this habit of addressing large groups of people and giving them like a riddle. And, and parable sounds so much nicer than riddle, but that's what it is, you know? And then he walks away, and he doesn't explain what it is, and it takes the disciples coming after him and being like, Jesus, what was that about? And then he explains, don't you understand? And then he explains what it means. And so with this, with this particular example, I think things like agriculture and plants, and he uses like uh, the family structure and those kinds of things, or, or uh, bread, we'll read in a minute, he uses bread as an example, is one, when you do have it explained to you, that bridge that connects the symbol to the meaning is a little bit more concrete. It'll, it'll hang on a little bit tighter because you're like, oh, because it's like this, it makes a little bit more sense. Um, and also, I think the mustard seed to these, these ancient people was really common. The plant was, was very frequent and common in gardens and in fields. And so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't going to be rare that you would walk through a, a valley or a road and see one of these trees. And I think Jesus is really smart. And he's like, when you see those trees, you're going to think of this story that I told you. You're going to think of your initial confusion, and then you're going to think of the kingdom of God. And so it's like continually reorienting you, continually doing this sort of thing. I was watching our Alpha video for this week, and I was thinking like, man, our congregation is really going to enjoy this one because there's a Jeep in it. It's going to be so much more memorable because you're used to hearing about Jeeps from this pulpit. And then you'll see a Jeep in the video and be like, oh my gosh, that point just really hit home with me. And Nate has crafted that so well with the folks from Alpha that there's a Jeep in this video. It's got four doors, though, and I know Nate's not a four-door guy. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> Jokes are always funnier when you say that they're a joke and you explain what they mean. Um, so uh, Jesus is using this story. The next part of, of the parable is the birds. Now, this is where... Um, when, I, when I initially read this, when I was initially preparing for this morning, this is where I was thinking, there's something else going on here that, I, that I'm not like drawing the immediate connection to, because this is something that happens in the New Testament all the time, where there is exact or intentional wording that is meant to make you think of something else. So like if you read uh, the like, beginning of John's gospel, it says, in the beginning, that's not like a coincidence. That's meant to make you think like, didn't I read that somewhere before? Oh, that's Genesis chapter 1. It's meant to draw a, a line between those two passages. And that happens all the time. Dr. Tim Mackey calls it a hyperlink. If you ever get an email and there's blue words, and you're like, why are these words blue? You can click on that. It takes you somewhere else. And so Jesus is using this, this phrase, the birds of the air, and, and making nests in the branches. And and for my limited experiences, like, that sounds really familiar. I know I've read that somewhere before, or I've read it somewhere else and then thought of this and that sort of thing. So I looked it up, not just going off of my memory, and we're going to read two examples, or we're going to talk about two examples from the prophet Ezekiel. The first one 
is in Ezekiel 17. And this again begins with a parable very similar to this one, but except this time the sower is an eagle, which is very cool. Um, the eagle comes, rips the top off of a tree, and then plants it on another mountain. And uh, it plants it by abundant water so that it'll grow, and then the question is posed to the hearer, will this plant thrive? And the prophet wastes no time explaining what that means. This is a, a uh, parable. This is meant to uh, be an example of Israel, of the, the empire of Babylon, of the judgment against the covenant-breaking Israel, and the eventual redemption of Israel itself. And so we see that conclude like this in verse 23 in chapter 17. It says, On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that being the tree that it ripped off, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. Birds of every kind will nest under it, and they will nest under the shades of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree and exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will perform it. The second example that I want to look at is just a little bit later in the prophet Ezekiel. It's in chapter 31. It's, again, a similar sort of riddle, parable, metaphor that is describing a tree, but this time the tree is meant to represent the recently fallen uh, kingdom of Assyria. It's saying that this kingdom rose up to power and was very great and stately and all these sort of things, and it likens the birds. It uses the birds in the same sort of... Uh, in the same sort of breath as describing the nations of the earth. And so what the prophet is kind of alluding to with this is that those birds nesting in the branches that you can picture in your mind are actually the nations of the earth that are coming to Assyria for relief. They're not trusting in the Lord, they're not trusting in their own forces, but they're coming to Assyria because Assyria is getting it done. Eventually the Lord tears down that tree because they're corrupt and oppressive and prideful, but it seems like Jesus is drawing from the same language. When we think the birds of the air, we don't just think of like the kingdom of God somehow has something to do with birds. I think it's meant to draw our minds to Ezekiel 31 and meant to think that there are nations, there are peoples all over the world. This is not just a movement for Israel. If we got that wrong, then all of us are sitting here for next to no reason. <laughs> you know, it's not just a movement for Israel, but nations from all over the earth can come into the kingdom of God and find rest and peace and home. Does that make sense? So, right after that, we get a bonus parable. Don't you love when there's a bonus? <laughs> Nate asked me this week, he's like, are you going to do the bread one too? And I was like, I don't know. I have, I have a hard time like talking too long anyways. Maybe I just don't do the bread one. But they're almost the same thing. So, we're going to do it this morning. So, instead of communicating the exact same sort of message. It's very, very, very similar. But instead of talking about the size of the kingdom, like it starts small, gets big, it's more talking about the influence. The influence starts small and gets big. Look at this in verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, my preferred translation, which you'll see on the screen, uses the word peck. And I'm not like a bread guy, like I am a bread guy, but I'm not like in, in bread, you know, I don't get bread. Um, the word peck sounds like a small amount, I don't know. Like if you say like, oh, I'm peckish, that means like I could eat a little bit, you know. But apparently in the Greek, this is actually 
can reference a very large amount. And, and isn't that just how like yeast works? It takes a very small amount of leaven to leaven a relatively, like proportionately large amount of dough, right? Any bread people in the house? I've like, okay, we got bread people. Yeah, bread people, what's up? <laughs> got cheers for bread. And so uh, this is, this is um, I, I read a commentary and I think they're onto something, but this is communicating the same kind of message, just a little bit of nuance, but it's meant to, again, be that sort of reminder. It's meant to be that sort of, that sort of sticky picture that when you see bread, which you will, that you'll think of Jesus, that you'll think of the kingdom of God, you'll think of the words of Jesus, and that's a very positive thing. When you see a mustard tree, which they will, you'll think of Jesus, and uh, the commentator that I read, and I have really old commentaries most of the time, so if this like offends your, your feminist sensibilities, I'm sorry, <laughs> but like, it's specifically in the text, it's you, a man is sowing the seed and a woman is putting the bread in. I don't think that's like, speaking to like roles of men and women, but it's meant to be like, this is an example for all the people. You know, like whether you're keeping the home or whether you're working in the fields, this is an example for you. This is something that you're supposed to realize and remember. So I think that's really good. So when we bring all these pictures together, we see the kingdom of God is something that starts very small, but grows to a surprising footprint and influence. And in that, this influence is not just to the benefit of the sower, this is to the benefit of all the people around the, the, the kingdom. This is the benefit to people can come from far off and make nest in its branches. And I think the unique part of this parable in particular is that distinction between the beginning and the ending. Because if you were to hold a mustard seed in your hand and you'd be like, wow, that is really small. When I look at this, I don't think of birds nesting. I think of birds eating. You know, like, I don't think much of, of like, this being something that is stately or, or meaningful. Or if you ever get like the, the packs of leaven or whatever for bread, it's like, I don't think of a, a big, glorious, golden, delicious loaf of bread. I think of some sand. You know, like this is, this is not something that seems like it's very influential or powerful, but guys, you all have experience with unleavened bread. That's what we had this morning. Can you, like, uh, I think Shelby asked me the other week, why do we do this stuff? You get it from the Jewish section at City Market, and, I, and I, to my understanding, that's what they used for Passover, that's what they used for communion was unleavened bread. It's the feast of unleavened bread. And to me, before I got saved, I wouldn't even call that bread. That's a cracker. That's the difference between bread with, without leaven and leaven. Leaven is so influential in the way that the bread develops. And so we, we get these sort of pictures. And I was thinking about this, that you can think about this personally. And we sort of began with, with the example of timing, that there are things inevitably in your life where things are going to be hard and you're going to have to wait and you're going to have to trust. And you can think about this universally, that you can look at the world and you can come off of a great Sunday morning at Open Door Church and you can think like, God is doing something. That was world-class worship and we got to sing songs and, and if the rocks cry out, so will I, whatever. We get to do those sort of things and then you look at the news, God forbid, and see how dark things look. Or you go to your work and you see like, man, everyone needs Jesus, like... And, and you see your own life and you, maybe your family or your friends or your enemies and you're like, things seem hopeless. 
You can look at this parable this way, that there is some sort of promise built in here that the kingdom of God starts small and unassuming, but does grow. And that is, that is assured to us by the words of Jesus from his own lips. But I think the most striking reality about this is I think when Jesus is sharing this picture, he's speaking of himself. Can you imagine being the original audience? And you can excuse that sometimes Jesus says really strange things, but power is happening, you guys. Like things are happening on large historic scale. That there are demons getting, getting cast out. There are people getting healed. There are dead people who are dead coming back to life. And Jesus is doing it. And it's like, this guy is the guy. He came from nowheresville, Israel, and now he is broken onto the scene, and everybody thinks we're super cool, except for those people who want to kill us. And, and we're, we're moving, and there's crowds here, and we've got, we've got proto-megachurch going on, and God is doing something. And then your marvelous teacher, rabbi, gets arrested and put on trial, and mistreated, and tortured, and only the next morning gets hung on a cross, the most horrific and shameful way to die that they had access to, and gets killed in front of everyone. And then you're like, wait a second. I thought when he was saying the seed, we already were a mustard tree. <laughs> I thought we were already there. And, and the shock of the disciples as they're all like, we had so much hope that this was this was significant and historic, but now he's dead. And can you imagine the assurance when Jesus comes back and he's like, remember, I told you. I told you it was going to start like a seed. And even Jesus used the example, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it cannot produce another tree. And Jesus connects this story through his own life and through the fledging movement. And I can't imagine how this would mean to the original audience and, and them looking after this year after year to say like, you know what, there were some good years where we had favor with God and men and then it felt like we were under siege and drowning where everyone wanted to kill us. In, in <laughs> Roman history, there was this guy that was uh, Pliny the Younger and he just would come up to Christians. He would find house churches and, and they were very obvious that they were Christians because they didn't act like everybody else. And he'd come up to them and he'd be like, you denounce Jesus or I will kill you ordered by the government. Like, hey, could you find out about Christians for us? He's like, oh yeah, I know how to find out about Christians. You denounce Jesus or I will kill you. And the Christians were like, well, no. You know, <laughs> like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna denounce Jesus. He's the Lord. And then they would get killed. And he would write in his reports, like, these Christians are crazy. You know, like, and he'd publish this with the Roman Empire and, and all these sort of things. And, and you get these historical accounts of these people that are like, these guys don't want to worship our gods. They don't want to do all these things. They don't want to go to our orgies. I don't understand these Christians. And every time we bring up Jesus, they're just like, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus all the time. And they're like, but what if you die? It's like, well, then I guess I die. You know, that would lead people like Paul the Apostle to say, like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, it's like, this is part of what it is. And he would write to Timothy, it's like, if you want to love Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. So can you imagine to this original audience the assurance that comes from the words of Jesus when it starts small, but it's going somewhere? That there's no, like, it's not like the parable of the sower where there's like vines and other things. In this particular parable, it's like, I'm going to plant the seed and the seed is going to grow. 
But the thing that people ditch out on is germination. <laughs> they ditch out on the, the, the sapling stage. You know, it's like, all right, I believe in the kingdom of God, but, I'm sorry, again, if you're a botanist and you're like, what are you talking about? I just came up off the top of my head. Um, that's not how trees work, I don't know. They start out small, they get big, whatever. You get it, you get it. But this idea that uh, there is growth happening, even if you cannot see it, is not the most assuring thing. I think it requires faith. <laughs> it requires trust. It requires some sense of loyalty that even though I have a reason to quit, I'm not going to. And I think uh, this, is, this is sort of an aside, but I, I feel like it'll, it'll mean something to you today. That sometimes that, that friction that we meet where you're disappointed or you're, you're upset or you feel like God has, has let you down, sometimes that doesn't come from God just like messing with you. I think his timing is complex and, and meaningful, but I, I think a lot of times that's you counting on a promise that God never made. And, and I think if you're like, man, I can't wait until I become a Christian and then I never struggle or am tempted ever again, God never promised that to you. God actually promised you the opposite. It's like, I can't wait till I'm a Christian and then I don't have these problems with my coworkers and I don't get in, get in arguments anymore and, and things are a little bit easier. God never, he promised the opposite. If they hated me, you best believe they're going to hate you. I have this quote from uh, A.J. Swoboda, who's a pastor turned professor, and he wrote this incredible book called After Doubt. I have it upstairs so I can loan it to one of you if you're interested. But right towards the conclusion of this book, he says this, we must embrace covenantal love with God. Part of trusting God is learning how to be disappointed by him. That is precisely how we learn to trust God through the worst of life. We learn to discern the difference between trusting in God and trusting in false beliefs about God that God never promised. That some people will come to the Lord with their own ideals like, God, I will trust you as long as my guy gets elected. And I don't think anybody says that out loud, but sometimes they do. I've heard that from people in, in theological conversations. If God did that, I could never follow Jesus. And these are people who serve in churches and work, work at churches and teach the Bible. And it's like, dude, you better chill because God doesn't have to answer to you. It's like, if, if, if I lose this thing again, I, I, I don't know, Jesus, you better prove yourself. And we have testimonies of God coming through in, in powerful, amazing ways. But if you're counting on something that God never promised, God does not privilege you to receive that thing. And there's a way of suffering that every Christian has to count the cost for. And sometimes when I'm preaching, I feel like I'm trying to talk you out of it. I'm not trying to talk you out of it. I'm trying to talk you more firmly into it. Because what's going to happen is there will be trouble in this life. And that's not prophetic. That's the Bible. That we will all meet tension and hardship and disappointment and loss. And, and I think the assurance that we have is not that God's like, sucks. You better buck up and get over it. The assurance is that he is the one who suffers, that he suffered, undeserving. There are a lot of times that I've suffered because I'm dumb. And, and maybe if there's the honest among you, you'll say the same. I've suffered because I made mistakes. 
And I think Jesus suffered for us. You know, he didn't make a mistake. He didn't do something wrong. He was perfect, and he suffered. And so we know that in our suffering, in our impatience, in our waiting, that Jesus is with us and that he is faithful. And the promise, the story that he's telling us this morning is that the tree's going to grow, baby. I've got it worked out. It's going to be big. And it's going to perform a function. And who of you, by worrying, can add a day to your life? And guys, talk about, like, prime example of easier said than done. <laughs> right? Like, I, I get that. That this, this alone does not, uh, like take away difficulties or sorrow or, or waiting or anything like that. But the, the, the promise is that there is something coming. There's other things coming too, probably even worse things. So buckle up <laughs> and trust Jesus. And last week we, we sang Oceans, which I know is like sometimes the most like cringy Christian song. And it's like, whatever. I still really like it because it reminds me of when I first got saved. Um, and it's also just another song that gets to say, you know what? I could give up but I'm not going to. And I think sometimes when you're, you're on the mountaintop and you're, you're being very, very Christian, you're like, I could never give up. There are times, and maybe your faith is stronger than my, mine, and I hope it is, but there are times where I'm looking like, wow, I should just, I don't know, go back to school and get a different job. This is, I don't know if this is going to work. I remember pouring acid on concrete and, uh, talking with friends and realizing, like, do people even get saved anymore? <laughs> this was years ago, obviously. My immature bitterness of being 28. Now I'm 30 and I know that there's hope in the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> but this parable is a reminder that God's kingdom does begin humbly, but it is advancing forward to that glory, and it will be a mighty tree where the birds, the nations of the earth, will come and take rest in its branches. And, and sometimes we think about, like, we're at the root of the tree. Sometimes we need to realize we're birds that are going to rest in the kingdom of God. Don't abandon the ship. Don't give up. If you're getting started and you're like, I don't know, this seems, I'm unconvinced. Get convinced, man, that there's very few things that people will stick, stake their reputations and their lives on, and this is Jesus. Jesus is the one true way. I love this passage from Philippians Paul, the apostle, is writing this to the church in Philippi, and uh, they're in this strategic location, and, and all these things are happening, and he writes to them, like, man, I, I, I haven't stopped praying for you since I heard about you. I, I've been praying for you, and, and he encourages them in this prayer, and he says this in verse 6 in chapter 1. He says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he, he being the Lord, who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Can you imagine? And sometimes we read that, we recite that, and we're like, all right, so next week, baby, 2024, that's it. That's, that's, he'll perfect it by then. He'll perfect it by the time my, my kids move out. He'll perfect it by the time I, I get over this, this particular lap of addiction. No, it says until the day of Christ Jesus. And if you're like a, a Bible person and you've got your hyperlinks turned on, the day of Christ Jesus is the day of the return of Jesus Christ. And this is not a sermon to talk about when he's coming back, but it's not 
this very moment. <laughs> so we've still got time. He's still perfecting. He's still working. And he who started is faithful to finish it. And I think that's something that uh, takes reminding. It takes uh, remembering that he who actually starts this, and it wasn't you. It wasn't like, well, that genuine experience I had with Jesus where I was crying on the altar and he saved my life and he gave me peace. I made that up. I started that. No, you're not capable. I'm sorry, I'm like runny nose and the, this microphone picks up everything. <clears throat> um, but he started something in your life. And whether it was explosive and amazing or whether you hear testimonies and you're like, wow, mine was so boring. You know? I love the testimony of um, John Wesley, who grew up in church. He was very passionate about the Lord, traveled and preached, and eventually moved from England to the United States, um, and then back to England and those kinds of things. And he preached and he, he shared, and every time he would preach about faith, he'd be like, I don't feel anything. And I'm reading his biography, he'd be like, I feel that. You know, there are other people like, oh, did you feel that, that spiritual, not really, you know? And, and he's like, what do I do? And, and he's around these missionary folks, these, these Moravian guys, and they're like, just keep preaching. Just preach faith until you feel faith. And he's like, I don't know. And he's very articulate, very educated, incredible speaker. And he's, he's speaking. And then he says, one day, years later, after planting a church and a movement and seeing like thousands and thousands of lay people come to the knowledge of Jesus and start reading their own Bibles and theologizing themselves and seeing a movement from the humblest of circumstances rise up in England and in America, one day, he said his, his heart felt strangely warm. And he f experienced the Holy Spirit. He experienced the assurance of God, and he had hope. He's like, why is it that these other uneducated missionary guys aren't afraid, but I'm afraid of everything? <laughs> And he said, one day, it just clicked. It just happened. And we can fill the annals of history with stories of people that were disappointed until one day. The Bible even takes a great length to describe people that were disappointed even until they died. <laughs> but the point is that the Lord is faithful. And the kingdom of God is not some weak seed that is barely succeeding to thrive. The kingdom of God is moving, and the kingdom of God is here and now. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to pray together. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.